Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Carolyn Holmes, who is the author of The Black and the White Rainbow, Reconciliation, Opposition, and Nation Building in Democratic South Africa. This book was published in 2020 by the University of Michigan Press, and it is a deep dive with a lot of really fascinating um, sort of ethnography and interviews and discussion of what it means to build a nation, particularly from a nation that existed um, in South Africa. But I'm going to let Carolyn tell us a little bit about that. I'd like to welcome Carolyn Holmes to the show and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> um, so yeah, I my name is Carolyn Holmes. I'm an assistant professor at Mississippi State University. Um, this is my first book, hopefully, of many, who knows, who knows what the future holds. Um, but I'm really excited. This is based on my dissertation and the field work uh, that I did was um, as part of my graduate studies. And then I went back for some follow-up trips to update and de- uh, dig in a little bit deeper on some of the things that I didn't get the chance to do um, while I was in the field as a graduate student. Um, so this particular project sort of dates back to I mean, the project itself, I did my fieldwork in 2012 and 2013, but this, when I was trying to think through why did I want to ask these questions in the first place, it gets to sort of my formative experiences in terms of getting interested in political science as a discipline, which mostly happened, I'm embarrassed to say, when I was in college, I didn't really pay attention to politics before then. Um, I thought I was going to be a history major it was fine. Um, but essentially, it comes back to the sort of entree that I had into the international political scene with the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. And it's a little bit weird for me to say as an Africanist to say that this the inspiration for this project is from a decade before uh, it, in a different region of the world. But it essentially comes back to this question, of like, what do you actually do to make peace in a country that has experienced really deep social divisions. Um, And the reason that I think that the sort of genesis of this project is actually in the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 is because that experience where people were talking about nation building and actually doing institution building, right? Putting in place the institutions of party competition that they called democracy that didn't yield a nation, and it didn't yield a democracy. That's the sort of, I think, the genesis ultimately of the questions that I came to graduate school with. What does it actually mean to build a democracy? What do democracies require? How do they actually rely on the idea of basic unity among people, right? It's like a family. You can fight about everything, but there are some things that you have to know you're on the same page about, right? That's the nation part. The democracy part is the fighting, is the competition. And so in some ways, this book 
is the culmination of my asking sort of the same question for 15 years. Um, and so that, that's the sort of advent of the project. The advent of my interest in the region comes from the fact that I sort of stumbled into a study abroad as a senior in college, um, wanting to go somewhere and finding a place, uh, finding a, a South Africa program in a brochure. I went there. I fell in love with the um, with the kinds of questions that people were asking in the political sphere about race, about democracy, about political participation, about equality, about the nexus of uh, sort of the economic side of democracy and the social side of democracy and the political side of democracy. And I, I went to graduate school based on, based on that. Cool. And, and again, this comes through your, your sort of engagement with South Africa comes off every page of this book um, and and your your fascination with it, but not as somebody sort of standing outside like a you know sort of um, in a white jacket but 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 really there's there's this sort of what is going on here and what are the layers that are engaged in nation building, democracy building, institution building, and of course how are they fitting together and not in, in this place that has this terrible history. Um, and so, and sort of diving into that, the, you know, a lot of what you're talking about in the book is just that, how do these things come together? Can you talk to us a little bit about how you were thinking about, you know, this question of nation building, democracy building, which are not the same as I learned through reading your book in very clear ways, um, but particularly in South Africa, which had this terrible, not only apartheid, but the sort of longer history of um, the Afrikaners, if I said sure. that Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the thing about nation building in South Africa is it has been a preoccupation of the South African state since South Africa was a state, right? It became a union in 1910. And we only, like, even from that moment, even from the sort of birth of the Republic of South Africa in 1910, there's this question, like, how do you actually get people that were fighting, in this case, in the South African war, primarily between uh, at least conceptualized in that moment as primarily between the British and the Afrikaners. How do you get them to hang together? And this sort of question is built into the very architecture of the South African government, right? The Capitol building is made up of two wings and the architect wrote this manifesto about the, um, the Capitol building in, uh, in Pretoria, that the two wings were to, to, to symbolize the two races of South Africa, the Boer and the Briton. And right, they come together at a right angle with the rotunda and that's supposed to be like the nexus of what it means to be South African, where these two wings sit together. And so in some ways, South Africa is the perfect place to examine the question of like, what do you do to make people feel like they belong together after they've fought about not belonging together? Um, and so that's why I wanted to pursue this project in the place that I did. Um, and the, the important part for me was to go in with as broad an understanding and as broad a frame for the nation as I could manage within a political science framework. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, despite what some, um, some people might, 
lead, uh, be led to believe. Um, so I was, I was very interested in the, the political angle of things, the um, sort of translation of power through everyday interactions. Um, but what I did essentially to pursue these questions was just go to South Africa and ask people questions like, what does it actually mean to be South African? How do you feel South African? Um, in what places do you feel like you are South African? If you don't feel like you're South African, what do you call yourself? Um, and those sort of very open-ended questions that are not, not meant to pre-program much, not meant to, uh, you know, frame the discussion very, um, very much, honestly, uh, just to let people talk about how they sort of map their social and political identities. That was that was the sort of goal of of the interview portion of the research. And and you do a couple of different things in terms of getting the research, getting at sort of the information. And you do spend a lot of time talking to people. And you have you know sort of in the appendix a list of the questions and and so forth, and also a discussion of how you coded responses. And so I was I wanted to ask you in particular because you did spend so much time in South Africa doing this field work. You know what did you find when you were interviewing individuals about these questions? What does it mean? To to be South African, were there surprises in some of what you learned from people there and and what also fit into with maybe what you kind of expected? Yeah, the real surprise for me was the points in the interview when people got emotional um, because it was different for different groups of people. And there were sort of systematic differences. There were some people that were mad at me from the word go right? Presumptuous American, you think you're going to come here and tell me about racism. How about you look in the mirror and, you know, you, you go ahead and solve, solve your own, you know, straighten your own house before you come here and tell me how to straighten mine. Um, so that was one set of responses. Another set of responses was, of course, I feel South African. What gives you the right to tell me I'm not? Okay, right. That's data. Um, and the, the interesting thing, and the thing that I really, uh, really love and admire my graduate school mentors for is they are hammering into me that everything in the interview space is data, right? It's not just the text from the interview. It's the pauses. It's the laughs. It's the point at which people shut down, the point at which people ask to be excused to take a breath, the point at which people stop to tell a different kind of story. And so what really surprised me was the range of emotional reactions that I got to relatively non-charged questions. Um, so the one particularly interesting uh, sort of episode was when I got physically thrown out of an office, um, physically escorted out by security after my second question. Um, so the second question was, uh, you know, in what context do you feel South African? And that to me was a total shock. This was about two months into my field work. I had not come across any of this hostility. And I had to do a lot of unpacking with that. Like, what, what was it about this particular interaction? And you know, not to give away too much, but this, this was an older gentleman. Um, he was uh, of a very pronounced political persuasion. Um, and he just took offense from, from the word go. And those kinds of things, I think, were both surprising and challenging in my research because that is still an interview. There's still a lot to unpack there. There's still a lot of information, but it requires a lot more 
interpretation. It requires a lot more decoding. So in that sense, the range of emotional responses and when they entered into the interview space was constantly surprising to me. In terms of what was expected, um, and I probably should have expected this more, was the various ways in which people reacted to me as a white woman um, asking these questions. So I knew going in that interviewing people in a deeply racially divided society, regardless of how much I had prepared, regardless of how much I had studied my languages, regardless of how closely I tried to conform to sort of standards of, of acceptable dress and acceptable presentation and all of that sort of thing. Um, it, it both surprised me the extent to which my identity shaped the research and the ethical landscape into which I was entering. Um, and also it was something that I tried to be as introspective about as I could during the process. And some of that is in the introduction of the book and some of it is in standalone pro projects, um, like uh, an article that's coming out in PS pretty soon. Um, but those sort of things were both built into the project design and something that I had to think about a lot while, while doing it. And, and again, you know, this is anytime you're interviewing, you are, you are present in, in the space and you present yourself. And, and I imagine that not only being a, a white woman, but also an American um, is a complicating sort of identity um, mm -hmm. to come into and ask questions about nationalism and racial relations and so forth. Um, and, and so I, I, the, the research is fascinating. And then of course, as you flag in the book, there is a real fascinating episode that you personally experience um, that uh, is not necessarily something that most of us think about when we're doing political science research, shall, shall I say, <laughs> or even yeah. science research. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your reaction to that, that particular episode as you're coming out of the interview? Um, so... The funny thing about South Africa, and for those that haven't been there, the um, there's a constant um, preoccupation across race, racial lines, across um, class lines with security. And so the security, the built security environment in South Africa is very different from the United States. Um, perimeter fencing, electrified perimeter fencing, guards, um, that sort of thing are sort of omnipresent in places where people can afford them and other sort of less formalized security infrastructure is there when um, when people can't afford it. So things like neighborhood watches, vigilante organizations. Um, there's a really great book by Nick Smith about uh, crime in South Africa. Um, uh, I don't remember the name of it. He's going to kill me. Um, he's wonderful. Um, but it's a great book about security and, and vigilanteism in South Africa. Um, I'm supposed to be talking about my book, though. Uh, and so the, <laughs> the interesting thing is that when you are thrown out of an office, you're not just sitting in the parking lot. And I didn't have a car at that point. I was relying on taxi services and friends to give me rides and um, buses and that sort of thing, because it felt a little bit more true to the spaces I was living in to use those modes of transportation. Um, so I was not just 
escorted out of a building. I was escorted out of a security perimeter. So I was literally sitting on a curb um, waiting for a taxi to come. Um, I had several people walk by uh, and say, or actually drive by and say, you know, is everything okay? You know, why are you just sitting here? Um, And I was fine, a little shaken by this particular, uh, not even by the, the physicality of getting thrown out of somewhere, but by the aggressiveness of it, with which what I thought was one of my like, soft leading, you know, intro questions. Let's build some rapport. Everything's good. We're going to talk about how nice it is to go to a World Cup soccer game. And this man just, no, like, no, we're done. Um, And I didn't understand what had exactly happened. And so in, in the, what I hope is the better tradition of interpretive and ethnographic research, I just said, well, I got I've got to write about it right? You've got to write about it. And so this particular episode, despite the fact that it's one of my shortest interviews by duration, is one of my longest journaled interviews. Um, and it doesn't actually feature that heavily in the transcript of this book because the, the data from the interview are not there, right? It's the, the data is a blankness. Um, the data is a, an absence. The only data that I have are the in the first question, right? Which is basically like, did you vote? Um, and then anger, right? Just this sort of block of anger. Um, and so the the thing that I think I hope that I did in the course of my research was to leave myself open to think about data in creative ways. And I think sometimes, not to knock on our own discipline. Um, But sometimes as political scientists, we don't allow for that creativity with data as much. And that's what I'm hoping this project demonstrates a little bit. Oh, I definitely think that it does in part. And and I think that you're, you're using the data in such creative ways to think about these questions of nation building and, and democracy building. And I wanted to ask you more about those sort of concepts as, as you were looking at them in South Africa, because one of the one of the recurring themes that you come back to is the idea of community, um, and and so you know we often think about you know nation building, infrastructure, as you said in Iraq, and um, and democracy building, you know making sure that you have access to the ballot um, and these sort of components. But what you're also talking about, and, and you note how it's growing out of work by others on this idea of, of a community, how do you form a community? And what was going on in South Africa is really this ephemeral kind of understanding of like, how do you build a community? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love for you to be able to talk a little bit about how that fits into this picture of nation building and democracy establishment and getting beyond to some degree, maybe, um, the past in South Africa. Yeah. So sort of going back to that Iraq example, um, I think that unfortunately, a lot of times when we talk about things like democracy building, nation building, state building, we use them as synonyms and they simply aren't. They're simply not the same thing. Um, and we know this if we actually look at the literatures about each of these things, right? It's just that in common language, right? As with so much of the sort of common political use of these terms, we think of them as meaning the same thing. So how do you build peace in Iraq? Well, give everyone access to the ballot. The problem is 
right? Because these are all distinct imperatives, they don't always have the same incentives. They don't always have the same goals. And sometimes they are, in fact, diametrically opposed. So in the, the case of nation building, if we look at the actual theoretical literature on nationalism, what is a nation? It's a three-dimensional concept, right? We have territory, we have culture or some sort of sense of similarity, and we have population, right? Those are the three dimensions of the nation. Okay, well, two of those map quite closely onto a state, right? We have territory and we have population. States don't necessarily have the sort of similarity of culture or the you know sense of binding together, which is why we use the word nation state, right? We have a compound concept for that. Okay, great. So then what is a democracy? A democracy is a system in which we have institutionalized regular means for people to have input into their government, put people into office to represent them and take them out when they're not happy with them, right? Through elections, through petitions, through protest, through guaranteeing rights and liberties, that sort of thing. Okay, great. The problem is that democracies depend on people fighting, right? And we can think about this as the sort of agonistic concept of democracy, or we can think about this as the very, you know, chummy, backslapping, good old boys club. But ultimately, democracies depend on competition of ideas in the marketplace and the sort of deciding among a variety of options. Now, the thing about nation building and democracy is, and we've seen this from the literature on democratic consolidation the world over, in post-Soviet states, you don't get class-based parties, right? This is Jacob Zielinski's work. Um, you don't get class-based parties in post-Soviet states because you don't have salient class divisions in society at the, at the moment of the party system formation, and so therefore people's class interests aren't represented. Okay, well, that actually tells you a lot about how new democracies form, how party systems form, and what information is going into them and being solidified in them as they're forming. And so this, again, is sort of contributing to the idea that democracies institutionalize fighting. They institutionalize fighting along already salient political cleavages. And so therefore, we need to attend to the idea that there has to be a sense of basic similarity for a nation to take hold. And there has to be a sustainable way to have divisions represented, but not be, uh, you know, like totalizing fights in the context of a democracy. Now, how do we actually build a nation? Well, the, the work from nationalist scholars, not nationalist scholars, that's, uh, that's the wrong way to say it, but scholars of nationalism, I guess, um, says that ultimately, you focus on what makes you the same and you forget about what makes you different, right? How do you make peasants into Frenchmen? Well, you make everyone speak a standard form of French. Or if you're talking about Gellner's work, you let the Industrial Revolution come and you sort of erase all of the, uh, you know, the, the distinctions of language and religious practice by making everyone live in cities. And so you have this gradual sort of fading away of the things that make you different. Some other folks say, oh, you force everyone to live together. You force everyone to, uh, you know, go to the same schools or speak the same language or, or have the same common rituals or have the same symbols. But you focus on what makes you the so democracies, when they're forming, are all about focusing on what makes you different. Nations are all about focusing on what makes you the same. There we go. That's the central puzzle of why it is that nation building and democracy building are simply not the same. And in fact, they work at odds with one another. So why do we pair these imperatives? Because each one needs the other, right? You need for 
democratic infighting, the fighting between parties to be sustainable, you need to basically have people feel like they have common interests. It's okay if you lose, losers consent, because I know that even if my party loses, I will be able to feed my family, I will be able to live in harmony with my neighbors, I will be able to go about my daily life, and maybe we'll get them next time, right? That is the nation undergirding democracy. Now, the democracy undergirding the nation is what prevents fascism. It's what prevents the sort of running rampant of nationalism and the uh, sort of defanging the, the nationalist tiger so that it doesn't itself become something that is uh, exclusivist, that is xenophobic, right? Democracy tempers nationalism and nationalism tempers democracy. So we need both. But to say that they are the same thing is just ignoring the imperatives behind which. And, and in the case of South Africa, as you've talked about it, that, you know, the, the, the cleavage that divides the nation is very much one that is racially based. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if you have the sort of marketplace of ideas in South African democracy, it's going to be over these questions of racial, racial disunity um, or disharmony or stratification or segregation, whereas the move from apartheid South Africa through transition to a contemporary democratic South Africa is one that's trying to erase. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you end up with a party system that looks, um, according to scholars of South African party politics, it looks like a racial census, right? People are basically voting. You can either think about it as, you know, the direct census or as a set of racial heuristics, right, that have some sort of policy content to them because there are overlapping cleavages of race and location and class that all feed into it. But not not everything is reducible to everything else, right? Race is still a um, you know a dominant political cleavage that is in some ways being cross cut by an emergent black middle class, and in, in other ways not in South Africa. Um, but you can see in the the party behavior, right, in both the ways that people campaign in parties and also the way that voters respond to parties, that people are broadly sorting into racial classifications when they go into the ballot box. Um, And there's a a healthy debate about whether that's heuristics, whether that's census. um, And, you know, that's not, that's not necessarily my area, Um, but it is, it is interesting to, to note. And so what you end up with is every election, you are relitigating the apartheid divides. You're reproducing them. So it's not, that's why I specifically called this a book about democratic South Africa, not post-apartheid South Africa, because in a very real way, the apartheid system is being recreated in everyday life, in the politics of space, in the politics of voting, in the politics of social interaction, right? There's not much that's post about the lived reality of post-apartheid South Africa. The institutions are different. The people are the same. And and that was one of my next questions in terms of how to think about, like, the, as, as you know, in the book, South Africa has gone through this transition. Um, so it's, it's not technically apartheid South Africa. But as you say, it's not post. 
um, because the structures and pieces of apartheid are still there. Can, can you talk uh, also about that transition and, and how the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how the transition was supposed to negotiate this problem um, that, you know, we do have our problems with it in the United States, lots of places too. Absolutely. Um, how, but this is a really contemporary attempt to sort of get through these, these racial parameters. Yeah, absolutely. So South Africa, right? I mean, there's, there's a book by a scholar, Lynn Graybill, called uh, South Africa Miracle or Model. Um, right. This is this is the example of the transition that defied people's expectations. Right. We have scholars like Horowitz in the 70s saying South Africa is heading for civil war. We have international observers um, from t- places like the Brookings Institution saying just be prepared. Right. There's going to be a war in South Africa. That's what that that was the drumbeat. That was the drumbeat throughout the late 70s after the Soweto uprisings, um, after, um, you know, the, the sort of advent of um, the black consciousness movement and the revitalization of the armed struggle in South Africa, where the, the struggle against apartheid took on a more militant tone from the 1960s and 70s onward. And people were convinced, right, that South Africa was heading for war. And that's why 1994 sort of swept the world away. It was the South African miracle. It was the peace that was not supposed to happen. And it was ushered in by, you know, a handful of people, most eminent of which Nelson Mandela in cooperation with people like Effia de Klerk, uh, right? They're standing on the courthouse steps with their hands clasped, um, you know, arms raised uh, in sort of in victory. And this is the moment of optimism, right? It is, it is the miracle. This is and uh, there's there were headlines around the world, right? The New York Times, uh, the Daily Mail, everyone called it the South African miracle when the elections went off largely without violence, although not completely. People were shocked, and there was this moment of optimism. There was this moment where they had defied expectations. And then they followed it on with these amazing reconciliation programs, right? Sort of uh, parameter shifting explorations into history, um, ways in which the state was acknowledging in a very transparent, emotional, on television, in real time way, right? The, The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was on television all the time in South Africa. There was a reckoning with the contentious history of the past, right? There were, there were widows crying in the face of the people that had killed their husbands. There were mothers facing the killers of their children, right? And it's mostly women that were framed as the victims um, in the context of the TRC. It's got really fascinating gender and class dynamics as well as language dynamics, which I can go into for far too long, I'm sure, for this podcast. Um, but it was this direct emotional reckoning with the recent contentious past. Now, the other half of the South African miracle was this whole set of new political symbols, right? What was South Africa going to look like? There was going to be a new flag. There was going to be a new anthem. There was going to be the rainbow nation in which everyone had a place in which there was, you know, this sort of uh, post 
uh, post-Diluvian covenant of peace, right? Referencing all sorts of Judeo-Christian imagery of after the flood, God sends the, the rainbow to, you know, make a covenant that no such destruction will happen again. So on one hand, we have this moment in the transition that is deeply about remembering, right? It is deeply about engaging with the past, acknowledging the state's complicity and actions in perpetuating the violence, both from the liberation movement side and from state security forces side. And then there's this other side, this symbolic side that says, this is our breaking point and we are moving on in a new day. And the argument that I'm making in this book is that that divergence, where the transition held both a commitment to remembering and a commitment to forgetting, sets up this tension in what it means to be South African into the near future. Because it's very unclear whether the transition was pacted in order to acknowledge the past or in order to break from it. And so that is the, the central, that's why I have the, the chapter on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the symbols, um, chapter three, I think. <laughs> I should know that, I should know that. Uh, yes, chapter three. Uh, so symbols with and without history, because essentially the, the argument in nation building is again, forget what makes you different, remember what makes you the same. The argument in democracy is forget what makes you the same and remember what makes you different. And the transition held both of those impulses sort of within it. And and so what do we learn from that particular like point, zenith point in time, um, where, as you say, these kind of tense, these tense components that are also building on an, an already existing nation? Right. This is this is not this is not coming out of the state of nature in a Hobbesian way um, and entering civil society, you know, completely clean or without sin or whatever terminology you want to use. Um, unsullied. unsullied, you know, whatever Hobbes Locke was actually thinking happened at that moment um, that we none of us ever experienced um, that that. So we have this this sort of point this fulcrum, but that South Africa then moves and, and, and it gets a little bit stuck um, in a certain sense, because you're holding these things in tension at the point when you're trying to recreate the new state. Um, how does, how does that get negotiated and where are we now? Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is that then everyone has something that they attach to the transition and something that they are alienated from in the transitional period. Right. So we have those people, Afrikaners, that were, you know, the subject of the apartheid state, even if they don't consider themselves to be formerly allied with the uh, apartheid state. Right. They were the 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 reason that apartheid existed was as a social upliftment and welfare state project specifically for. Afrikaners and more broadly for white people in South Africa, um, right? The, uh, the rallying cry of the Afrikaner nationalist movement was not even one a white person should be allowed to go under, right? It was a massive, massive welfare state project for white people and specifically in the service of the purity of the white race. And so in some ways, the, the forgetting aspect of the transition, the idea, this is a break from history, 
is a sort of get out of jail free card. It is a look, we're all South African now. It is the point of entrance in which people that feel in some way culpable or privileged by the prior regime have a way to say it's, it's their door into South Africanness, right? It's their welcoming back into the fold. We are now all South African. We are all rainbow nation citizens. And therefore we have equal footing. Right. It's the sort it's again, it's the flood metaphor. Everything is washed clean. Now, on the other side, you have those people that were systematically victimized by the apartheid state. Right. African populations, black African populations, broadly speaking, populations of color that were the subject of, I mean, wide ranging brutalities from the apartheid state, the colonial state before it, um, although the, the transition and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had a very limited mandate in terms of the time frame that they were talking about, right? They were really only talking about about four decades of history. They weren't, you know, it wasn't a panacea in terms of its aims, um, in terms of uh, sort of addressing racial inequality. Um, but those people that were victimized by the state, that needed that recognition, that needed a reckoning of some kind that says we were wronged in a very real way, that is the point of entrance there. Now, what you then end up with is incommensurate ways of belonging in the new nation, right? Those that see the transition as a break and those that see the transition as a continuity are coming to the idea of political community with just totally different frames of history and uses of history in the understanding of the nation. And what is the nation except the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and where we come from? And if you don't have the same story, then you automatically start off with just vastly different conversations. And and so in terms of the research that you had and and a lot, as you note, the second question that you asked where you were so uh, abrasively responded to um, is, you know, what do you, how, how do you think of yourself as a South African? Can you talk about why that particular question? Obviously, in this particular si- situation, there was something triggering about that. And this is where you're talking about, like, how do you come into being considered a South African? Um, and where does that land you when you're being just dis- when when you're answering questions in 2014 about that status? Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah. So the the impetus behind that question is, I guess, a little bit autobiographical, right? Because I I grew up in a very patriotic family, right? We had an American flag flying out in front of our house every day. My mom would make every scrap of clothing, red, white, and blue, if she could have. I mean, the 4th of July was like a big deal for us. We went to parades, we had parties and barbecues and all this sort of thing. And it came as a sort of shock, again, when I came to college to realize that that wasn't the experience of being American for most people. Um, And indeed, you know, the, the people for whom that is the experience tend to look a lot like me, tend to be from places that are quite similar to mine, that have backgrounds similar to mine. And it, it came as a shock to me at the ripe old age of 18 to realize that this point of sort of patriotic attachment was not the unproblematic, rosy, you know, George Washington, I cannot tell a lie type of story of America. Um, And so in some ways, 
using that as my jumping off point was trying to be as value neutral about the nation as possible without doing too much scaffolding, without doing too much um, sort of preempting or uh, prompting of people. I wanted to know what what is it that makes you do you call yourself South African was question one. And question two is, when do you call yourself that? Um, and if not, why not? So if the answer to the first one is no, then if not, why not? And if yes, then when and under what circumstances? Um, it was also a pretty, I, I had thought <laughs> until that interview, a pretty innocuous question, in large part because it gave people the opportunity to talk about the World Cup, which had only been about 18 months before I started my interviews. Everyone wanted to talk about that. Everyone wanted to talk about going to the soccer games. Everyone wanted to talk about how terrible their national team was at the World Cup, which they were. Um, but no one was particularly sour about that because this is the story of South African soccer um, football. Sorry. Uh, sorry to any South African listeners. Um, I can only overcome my Americanist so much. Um, so it was a way to enter in, I thought, at the ground floor of these terms and try and get at them without assuming they had value, right? Because of, because of my own experiences in terms of my national identification, um, I wanted to make sure that we, we started off with a wide open field rather than with a narrow point of entry that would then program the conversation in one way or another. Um, and, and I mean, really what you're talking about a lot and what you are getting at throughout the book is this question of identity and the contested identity of South Africans coming out of, through and out of this transition period. Um, and so, and we right now in the United States is a very topical issue. Um, and, and you and I could talk about lots of books that our, our colleagues and friends have written about um, identity in the United States. But in terms of understanding identity in connection to nation and democracy building in South Africa, can you just talk a little bit more about what you found um, in terms of identification with understanding who you are in that context? Yeah, I mean, the the thing about national identification is we think of, I, I guess, when you think of the word nationalism or nation, you don't necessarily think about the ways in which that is a very granular experience for most people, right? Like, do you feel American is integral to, in fact, the continuation of nationalism and the nation, but it's not necessarily how we talk about nationalism or the nation all that often. Um, but ultimately, if you're looking at, you know, the work of Michael Billig and banal nationalism, if you're looking at um, Gellner and his uh, work on um, the, the nexus of, of sort of economic life and political life and uh, nations and nationalism, what we're relying on is individual people to feel a sense of connection with an imagined community of people that they don't know, that they will probably never meet, right, across space and over time. So the, the goal of this project was not to look at nationalism from the 10,000 foot level at which we think and analyze national, nationalism so often, but in fact to say, okay, well, if this is people imagining a community, 
let's talk about what they imagine their community to look like, where they imagine their community to come from. Um, and so the, and then, I mean, in terms of how identity and democracy are, are connected, I mean, I guess from my perspective, all, all politics are identity politics, right? Just like everything is chemicals, um, right? Your friend who says that they don't want to get vaccinated because they don't want their kids to be exposed to chemicals. Well, do your kids drink water? Like, yes, then they're exposed to chemicals. Um, so all politics is identity politics. You go into the voting booth and you vote based on your experience, based on your biography, based on what you prefer. And those things are shaped by who you are. So again, let's talk about how your identity sort of slots you into demographic, into democratic politics, your demographics become democratics, right? And so the, the goal in, in the project was to take seriously the fact that both democracy and nationalism are micro processes. Um, and that's why I wanted to go, I wanted to do these interviews, but I also wanted to observe things as they were happening, you know, go and sit in a sports stadium, go and see a, a music festival, um, go and see how people are actually conducting their daily lives, right? In, in a music festival, right, which is supposed to be this sort of linchpin of the new South Africa. Well, it matters that only white people attend. It matters that it's being conducted in a language that is a barrier to entry for most Black citizens, right? Um, it matters that there are places and lived experiences that are largely unchanged from before, because that tells you about the resilience of these social organizations, even in the face of institutional change. And this gets to my one of my favorite quotes from the entire book, where a young woman that I was interviewing said that her mother described the transition from apartheid to be like a wedding night. What had gone from being dangerous and uh, dirty and scary and prohibited, right? In the wedding metaphor, we have sex. In the apartheid metaphor, we have interracial contact. Uh, contact goes from being all of those negative things to being the thing you should do. And the problem is you're the same person on both sides, right? You are the same person who was brought up your entire life to think that sex was dirty and wrong and scary and gross and bad, and then you have this period, which is your wedding, and then suddenly it's not only what you can do, it's what you should do, right? And those kind of psychological transitions, or not, are what we're actually talking about when we're talking about nation building. It's winning hearts and minds, but no one ever bothered to ask what was in people's hearts and what was in people's minds. And, and so we end up with a, a sort of not necessarily stalled, but non-progressing? Non-consolidating, for non -consolidating. sure. Non-consolidating. Yeah, I mean, what you end up with is the prior, the prior system being solidified and institutionalized in new ways without being transformed, right? It's the, it's the non-transformative politics of regime transitions without without something that will reorganize, that will redraw the social map, the social experience. And, and so um, in that regard, I mean, you, you had mentioned some of the particularities, as you said, about the victim casting 
um, at the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission, sort of who were considered the victims. Um, and I'm, because I do some work on women and gender and stuff, I'm curious about what you saw in that specific zone, in that in that space, um, that also goes to sort of the fact that you had this transitional sort of map mm-hmm. through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but that it didn't necessarily change the map. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so, right, the, the thing that the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission themselves, right, people like Desmond Tutu, people like Alex Bahrain, they specifically said, the thing that we don't want people to take out of this is simple narratives of who were victims and who were perpetrators. There is not a moral story necessarily here. There's not a moral equivalence of the two sides, right? The ANC, the African National Congress and the liberation movements were not morally equivalent in their cause to the apartheid state. But there was violence being done to a lot of people across the, sp- the political spectrum, violence done by the apartheid state in sort of cramping the minds of the people over whom it was ruling. There was violence by liberation movements against sometimes civilian targets, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, and so in some ways, there had to be this collective grieving over what was lost in the, the, in the making and undoing of apartheid. Right. And so what uh, and scholars like James Gibson uh, and other scholars like Ernesto Verdeja of uh, of transitional justice say what you don't want to come out of this is a simple notion that some people were perpetrators and some people were victims and that you can easily code that based on race or gender or uh, other kinds of easily observable uh, demographic characteristics. Now, what I found in my interviews is that most people talked about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in terms of which side they were on, right? Were they, were they with the crying widows or were they with the police officers? And the problem with those kind of simplistic narratives of victimhood and perpetrators is not necessarily, it's, it's not a problem to say that we have a lack of moral equivalence, right? It's not a problem to say that there was a side that was on the side of right. But what you haven't done is allowed people the space to build their own biographies into that history. So I came across a lot of um, Afrikaner women specifically, uh, or they didn't all identify as Afrikaners, but people that were white women that were Afrikaans speaking, um, that said things like, well, my dad was in the security forces. Does that mean that how how do I reckon with that? How do I reckon with the fact that my family were the baddies, right? That we were the bad guys. Um, and in fact, one of the young women that I spoke to said, you know, I know that my dad wouldn't approve of the fact that I have black friends. I know that my dad is racist. Does that mean I should love him less? And I said, I'm not qualified to answer that. Uh, because truly I'm not. <laughs> but also, I think that that is the relevance of the, of this book, in fact, in some ways to the American situation, right? Because ultimately, you have to allow for the fact that people need to build in their own biography, their own sense of personal history into 
the past, right? And so when you emerge from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which told very horrific stories on all sides. I mean, if we look, for example, at the predations of some of the liberation movements against people that were um, seen as or actually state informants, um, if you look at the ways in which uh, the apartheid state was preying on uh, civilians, if we look at, I mean, there was violence done to a lot of people by a lot of other people. And that is, that needs to be addressed in some way. But by saying you have a side that was the perpetrators and a side that was a was the victims, you tell, again, a black and white story. So much of South Africa is about the fact, about the black and white, but then existing in the gray um, that doesn't allow for the renegotiation. Because what you've done is you've backed people into a corner. You've said you are inherently perpetrators, your family are perpetrators, your family are the bad people, and there's not then the space to maneuver in the ways that sort of a reorganization, a transformational politics would um, would seem to necessitate. Um, so after all of this field work, all of um, the interviews you did and, and, you know, living in South Africa and coming back to the United States, what what are you working on now? Yeah, um, so I, uh, COVID lockdowns have been, uh, you know, a real uh, a real problem um, for fieldwork people. Um, people who like to do fieldwork, people who would love to do fieldwork. Um, I would love to get back to South Africa, um, and I'm hoping against hope, you know, with uh, everything to get back sometime soon. Um, but right now I'm working on a couple of projects that are sort of digital ethnographies, in fact, of the um, of right-wing activism coming out of South Africa. Um, so around issues of uh, the so-called epidemic of farm murders um, that were tweeted about uh, to some fanfare in 2017 by President Trump. Um, uh, so I want, I've, I've got a forthcoming piece in politics, groups and identities about the international networks of, of um, basically alt-right or white nationalist um, activists from South Africa and how they've framed their, um, their campaigns which uh, I should say, right, the so-called epidemic of farm murders, because there's simply not a sufficient, there's, there's no indication, in fact, from um, reliable statistics that farmers in South Africa, white farmers in South Africa are uniquely targeted by violence. And yet the, these activists have been able to capture in a sort of cause celeb way, the imagination of much of the right-wing um, blogosphere, uh, internet space, for in the service of their campaigns. And they have um, made remarkable inroads, in fact, with the U.S. Congress, with um, uh, the Trump administration, et cetera. So that's one thing um, that I'm working on. Um, and another thing is uh, a, a set of pieces about conducting fieldwork, the ethics of fieldwork, um, and how identity should and must the identities of researchers, both those that we subscribe to ourselves and those that are assumed by our interlocutors, um, must, absolutely must 
sort of shape the framing of our of our research ethics. Um, so the ways in which things like race or class privilege or sexuality are shaping the ethical landscape into which researchers are entering um, when they are conducting contact-based research, whether it's interviews, whether it's participant observation, whether it's surveys. Wow, both of, all of that sounds great. And I'm sorry that you can't get to South Africa at the moment, as many of us cannot leave our houses. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, Unfortunately. I, I totally get that. I keep dreaming about getting on an airplane and going someplace, <laughs> like actually literally dreaming that. I know, right? It would be wonderful. I know. Um, so I hope that you'll come back when there's another project that's come out in publication and talk to me about it on the New Books Network. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So for everybody who's been listening, I'm talking to Carolyn Holmes about the Black and White Rainbow, Reconciliation, Opposition, and Nation Building in Democratic South Africa, University of Michigan Press 2020. I'm sure you can get this at the University of Michigan Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence to which you'd like to give a shout out? Um, I'll give a a shout out to Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, They're a wonderful independent bookstore uh, that's been in, uh, in operation in Oxford. And although that is the home of the University of Mississippi, our devout rival school, uh, I have a tremendous amount of affection for the folks over at Square Books. Great. So you can get a copy of this at Square Books or at the University of Michigan website. Thank you so much for joining me today, Carolyn. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 